All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Got the Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. My brother Jeff is off for this weekend's Money Wise program. Uh, if you're a new listener to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 32nd year of business with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And if you'd like to catch the Money Wise podcast, you can catch it on all your favorite podcast streaming apps. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I would typically turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. But since he's offered this weekend show, I will take it over. So in the week just past, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up just under nine-tenths of 1% or 0.87% positive, setting a record close on Friday. The S&P 500 was up seven-tenths of 1%, also setting a record close on Friday. But the NASDAQ, pretty close to flat. It was actually down eight one-hundredths of a percent. So let's just call that almost flat for the NASDAQ for this past week. Now, year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 16%. The S&P 500 is up 18.9%. And the NASDAQ trailing the pack, but not far away from the Dow, up 15% year-to-date. And again, these numbers for the year-to-date are without dividends. So I would say, Joe, we are in the summer slog when it comes to Wall Street. Lazy summer daisies, low volatility, narrowly traded market. but, but, But it's funny that we say the summer slog when the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 both closed at record highs on Friday, but it's important for all investors, all listeners to understand that it's just a very thin, narrow margin of stocks that are actually pushing this market higher. Uh, in fact, I heard a statistic on Friday that there was actually more down stocks in the S&P 500 than there were up stocks. It's just that the up stocks were much further ahead from a performance standpoint than the down stocks, why the S&P 500 closed at a record high on Friday. So as we talked about on last weekend show, for investors that are out there that have a higher level of cash sitting on the sidelines, we would advise to be moving moving very slowly, very deliberately as you're building stock positions in your portfolio through the process of dollar cost averaging. That's how we operate here at Davidson Capital Management when we have new clients that come on board with us, or we have existing clients adding money to their account. Uh, In in market conditions like this, where we have this narrow breadth 
of the market and we see fewer stocks pushing the market higher. And, and Joe, I, I know that doing this show going on 16 years now, I talked about this going, we have to go back in the Wayback Machine, even before you were on board with us. When we were taking Garrett five Davis callers, maybe? <laughs> Let's not go back that far. Okay. But back in 2014 and 2015, as I've dubbed it when I sit down with prospective clients or if we're just chewing the fat – about the market and its history, because as you know, we have an affinity for market history as we are professional money managers, is what I have dubbed the S&P 500 or the stock market cha-cha that we had in a 22-month time period between 2014 and 2015. And what I mean by cha-cha is it seemed that the S&P would take two steps forward, then take two steps back, then two steps forward and two steps back. And over that 22-month time period, The S&P 500 moved a whopping one point, yes, ladies and gentlemen, from a 22-month time period, from one point to the next, the market cha-cha'd for 22 months, and it went up a point. Now, I'm not saying that that's the kind of market that we're currently in or that we're going to be going into, but there are periods of time where the market doesn't have a true direction, and we talked on last weekend's show how we haven't been seeing real leadership from any one particular industrial sector, where one week the oils are doing really well, and then the next week tech has made a comeback, and then the next week it's consumer discretionary, and then the next week it's consumer uh, defensive stocks. And so we're not seeing the kind of leadership like we saw last year when we saw healthcare and technology post the COVID pullback and the real depths of the lockdown, those two horses came out of the barn hard and strong and did not stop running till they hit the tape at the end of the year. But we're not seeing that this year. And as we spoke on last weekend's show, we've been seeing this power struggle, this tug of war, particularly in the large cap asset class between growth and value. Now, where we saw value in the first quarter take off, then it saw, we saw it not do as well in the second quarter. And here comes the large cap growth names, a lot of these higher valuation tech names starting to, to come up from behind and pull ahead. And so we have this neck and neck battle. And now that we're in the month of August, and again, going into September, these two months are typically not the biggest gangbuster months for Wall Street. And so just kind of beat, Be on notice that if you have cash on the sidelines and you're looking to build your positions, do it very slowly, very deliberately in your dollar cost averaging process. Yeah, Joe. It's the same philosophy as if you're putting money into your 401k. If you have money outside of a qualified plan, you probably want to average in over a certain period of time because essentially we're looking at a cha-cha or I always call it like a sideways market, you know, and you don't know quite exactly what's going to happen. So sometimes the best course of action is to invest little by little or average in. Well, you you can also get, even though the Dow and the S&P hit all-time highs on Friday, I almost feel like even though outside of these making these all-time highs this past week, I almost feel like we're getting into this consolidation range. And what that means for our audience is you have a lower line technical support level for the broader market, but then you also have an upper line resistance. And there, I don't see in the next you know, month 
to maybe six weeks of any kind of underlying catalyst or story, you know, even Jackson Hole notwithstanding in the Federal Reserve's meeting out there in Wyoming. Or the Senate passing a, an infrastructure bill. Or, or yeah, because I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon with all the infighting, but what's new? But gridlock is a good thing for, for, for Wall Street. But I just don't see any catalysts in the next four to six weeks that if we're moving into this consolidated period technically in the market, what's going to either break it lower and go through the support level or break it out higher to get above the resistance level. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can catch the Money Wise podcast on all your favorite podcast streaming apps. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, just recapping Wall Street from this past week. And as we were saying in the last segment, just be very, very careful in here as you're building your stock positions in your portfolio. Now, we're still optimistic and obviously still bullish for the market, but we're definitely more cautiously optimistic because there are still... You know, I would say right now, one of the biggest, I don't want to use the word threat, but one of the, I would say maybe catalyst for a pullback in the market is if maybe something is discussed in the Federal Reserve's meeting at Jackson Hole uh, when it comes to tapering their bond purchasing or tapering of the quantitative easing. Now, we know way back in 2011 when Ben Bernanke, who then chairman of the Federal Reserve, just kind of came out of right field and said, hey, we're tapering and now is when we're starting it, uh, took the market, uh, completely shocked and surprised the market, and the market reacted very, um, I don't want to say violently, but it was definitely a corrective move in the market. And being that we haven't seen any, substant- any substantial corrective move in the market this year, um, that sometimes, again, can be a concern. Because, you know, as, as professional money managers, no one has that crystal ball. And so you always have to err on the side of caution, but you can still have bullish feelings as far as bullish, meaning the market moving higher. And we do feel that the market is going to be moving higher, but in these current conditions, particularly the political conditions that we have in Washington and the infighting there, even though Wall Street likes, they they like gridlock, Big unknown is when the Federal Reserve is going to start their tapering. And I know this past week, there was a little bit more grumblings. I know there was a, uh, a, a Fed governor that said, you know what, I would definitely be open to maybe looking at October to begin the tapering of the bond purchasing. But I personally think, just my personal views, Joe, and again, you don't have to agree with me, I think we're probably going to see the first taper sometime in the first quarter of 2022 because the Federal Reserve needs to see more employment data. And I know that's something that we've talked about in this past week. I read an interesting article in Market Watch because I know there's a lot of grumblings across the country that the extra unemployment benefits that the, that the government has been providing people as we've been recovering from the COVID pandemic 
has been one of the big talking points of why we have so few people really getting back into the labor force, even though the last employment report, we had over 900,000 jobs created and the unemployment rate went to 5.4%, but the participation rate is still quite low. And I also just read in the same article, Joe, over now 10.1 million jobs are currently available, not being filled. And so this article discussed, and this was out of Market Watch that I read it this past week. So there are several states, Texas being included, where we actually cut off that additional benefit early. Now, some of the other states, primarily states that are run by uh, the Democratic Party, they're extending those benefits through September. But what this study found is for the states that have already cut off the extra unemployment benefits, they're still not seeing a huge kind of rush of these unemployed to go and get a job. And so they wanted to dig a little bit deeper as to find out why. You know, why are we not seeing a ton of employment that's taking place in states that have already cut off the extra unemployment benefit. And what they found is during COVID and the lockdowns is of course, people were spending less. They were shut in, in their house. They, if they lost their job, unfortunately they had these extra benefits. And so they use these benefits to pay down debt. They use these benefits to basically, uh, make their savings accounts larger. And so even though these benefits have since been cut off, they're finding some of the, a lot of the unemployed that haven't gone out to get a job that are able-bodied to do so, they have reserves that they can continue to live on and be very selective on where they go and work. And so this, I know the reason why I'm bringing this up is this is a big topic that's being discussed in the Federal Reserve. And I know Joe Dad's can say, all right, Kyle, you've talked enough about the Federal Reserve. But this is a data point that they're really paying close attention to, particularly the September employment numbers that we'll be getting in October as part of a big determining factor of when they're going to start tapering the bond purchasing that they're doing to the tune of $120 billion on a monthly basis. And so now that I read this story, even when the remaining states in the country decide to cut off those additional unemployment benefits, it still might be months. And we might be getting into the first quarter of 2022 before we really get a true sense of what the employment participation rate is going to look like and not pay as much attention to the unemployment rate of 5.4%. So essentially, we're looking at a tail on unemployment. So September, when the rest of these unemployment benefits are taken away, it, it's, it's hard to gauge. We're going to have a, t- we're going to have a tail on that as to when we get back to full employment, which is obviously what's going to dictate what the Fed does and what their policy is. It, yeah. Uh, if, if, if they're strictly looking at just the unemployment number of 5.4%, I mean, I, I mean, Joe, we're going to have to go back in the way, way back machine with Doc Brown and the DeLorean to think back to Econ 101 in college where they used to consider 6% unemployment, full employment. So if we were going based on old macroeconomic 101 education from way back in college, we're in, in those, in that terminology, we're at full employment at a 5.4% unemployment rate. But in actuality, we're not. When you have over 10 million, jo- 10 million jobs as of this past week that haven't been filled. And I mean, 
just drive around San Antonio, Joe, how many do you see, you know, apply inside, you know, help wanted? I mean, I see trucks driving all over town with stickers. Please, we've got a job for you. Well, we mentioned they're not getting filled. We mentioned the subway across the street. You know, you'd walk in, they'd have one person working there. And they're and working there'd be a line town. out the door. And next thing you know, like people like me would go somewhere else. Because, you know, most, most of our listeners don't know we work through lunch a lot. We don't take lunches. A lot. Like, I, I've yes. got a ball and chain, cha- chain to my ankle. When the market's open, I'm in front of the, I'm in front of the market. I'm in front of the but trading outlet. You, you I mean, see, we have active it, managers by every, by every sense of the word. So. And it's across different industries, too. And there's other certain reasons. For instance, in the auto industry. There's less people selling cars because there's less cars. And I was talking to a guy, uh, a gentleman that works at a car dealership, and he's like, look, these, these car dealerships, they're figuring out how to make money selling less inventory. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic. So there might be less jobs that, you, that, that we would normally have to fill. So people are trying to be more selective, but perhaps in some cases that job's not there anymore they got to find something else to do. You bring so, up a very good point, Joe. The, these these unemployed. I do sometimes, you know. By the way, no, but 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 that's a, that brings up a very good point. And and this is still data points that the Federal Reserve maybe has contemplated, but we're not going to know because, like we've said, you know, going back to the COVID pandemic, no one has a playbook for this because the last time our economy had to deal with a global pandemic was the Spanish flu back in the the early 1900s. And so you're right, Joe, there might be companies that are figuring out they can do more with less. Now, granted, that might help them on the bottom line of their balance sheet. But if these longer term unemployed who are just kind of kicking back, waiting to be very, very selective about what jobs they take, by the time they finally decide to get up and go look for a job, the job that they maybe wanted to go get might not even exist anymore, not because somebody else took it but because the employer has figured out a more efficient way where they don't need a human body there to do that particular job. So you bring up a very, very good point. And then that could lead to much longer term unemployed people with the participation, participation rate coming down. But in turn for the people that are employed and what it's going to take that employer to motivate somebody to get up, apply for that job and take that job of them having to pay more money, which could then turn into an end effect of seeing more inflation, permanent inflation, as opposed to the transitory inflation that the Federal Reserve has been talking about. Because a lot of this transitory inflation is due to the supply chain bottleneck of employees not going back to work. But what happens when that factory owner automates and gets rid of maybe 50 jobs that are no longer going to be there. So these longer-term unemployed that are kicking back, being very selective, and they could go work, but they're choosing not to because they have a bunch of savings from these unemployment benefits, they better be very, very careful about just sitting back on the sidelines because these employers could figure out a new way to get more done with less. So if you're a listener on your couch right now listening to us and you haven't gone back to work, and maybe you bought some meme stocks or whatever in your spare time. You know, you, you might want to get back to work so you can buy some more of those meme stocks <laughs> and uh, go from there. But anyways. Well, again, I think we, we all have to chip in. and But we just have to be – the Federal Reserve has got a lot of data points that they still have to hash through before they make the determination of when they're going to stop 
doing their bond buying on a monthly basis. With that, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And if you'd like to catch our podcast, you can listen to the Money Wise podcast on all your favorite podcast streaming apps. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program coming from the bottom of the hour break, just talking a little bit more about inflation and the Fed's decisions. They've got the Jackson Hole Symposium coming up at the end of August. I, I don't know if there's going to be much information coming out as far as the bond tapering, uh, which is the slowing down or the ending of the bond purchasing that the Federal Reserve is doing on a monthly basis. My personal feelings, we're not going to see the first taper until the first quarter of 2022. But I know there was some grumblings this past week on Wall Street from one Fed governor that said he wouldn't be opposed to seeing the tapering start sometime in late fall uh, or early winter. But again, it's all data dependent with the Federal Reserve. We, we know that. I think there's a lot of data points that they're going to have to wait longer, particularly after what we just talked about in the last segment with folks that no longer receiving the uh, unemployment benefit but still choosing not to work because of the kind of stockpile of cash that they have on the sidelines, the fact they've paid down or paid off credit card debt. And so they're being very selective. And I know this past week, Joe, we had some uh, inflation data that came out that we wanted to go into. So I'll, I'll let you go into that. Yeah. I'll never be able to replace Jeff as far as going over the numbers and economic numbers. You can't, you can't do the smooth, his smooth jazz. I'm just not, I'm just not that good yet, but anyways, we can't, uh, we can't pick on Jeff too, too much since he's not here on the show to defend himself, uh, but but I know our clients, I know our clients love when he and I get it. He he throws out some, some some tremendous statisticals. I'll tell you that much. Statisticals. Looking at the last week, you had the producer price index was actually year over year. the, the, The largest increase they've had since they started actually taking that data and the PPI, if you will, was created with a 7.8% uh, increase. So if the Fed's looking at, they don't look at PPI probably as, as closely as they do other indicators, but the main reason behind that is uh, really a supply chain issue. You know, recently I went out and bought a, a pickup truck and I, let's just say certain chips that will prohibit you from buying the exact truck that you want and, or the exact car that you want and actually some of you may or may not know, like the Volkswagen Passat, they discontinued that altogether because they're trying to focus on cars that are more profitable, meaning we're adapting and the economy is adapting to some of these situations that are caused by the pandemic. And then, you you know, I don't know if you want to comment on that, Kyle, but, 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 but I was, but well, I mean, that just goes back to what we were talking about in the last segment is that some, you know, some companies, some employers are going to find ways to become more efficient and more profitable. And for the auto manufacturers, they're going to say, okay, what is our most successful, our most financially sound lines of vehicles? I mean, I know if you just look at the big U.S. auto manufacturers, I mean, it's trucks and SUVs. 
I mean, you see GM really starting to cut away all of their cars, you know, maybe minus the Camaro and the Corvette. It's crossovers, SUVs, trucks. That's right. Those are the big sellers and the bigger margins. Especially for for U.S. manufacturers, but even the foreign manufacturers, and a lot of them produce here in the United States now, um, they're doing the exact same thing. They're looking at their most profitable vehicles, and that's what they're going to be focusing on. And what's so interesting is that when they talk about the shortage of chips for the vehicles, the primarily the, pri- the primary chip that they're missing is a chip that costs one dollar or less that powers the LCD screens in vehicles. So one chip, one little one dollar or less per unit chip, is holding back the auto industry. It's just like with ammunition. Ammunition, it wasn't the issue that they didn't have the lead, they didn't have the casings, they didn't have the slugs, they the didn't primer, have the, pr- right? the the primer caps. That's South, South, Texas, thing. Uh, South Texas hunters, you know, you better get ready because death season's coming up. That's right. Make sure you load up on shotgun shells now. But they finally there's a primer they, shortage, all right. Well, no, no, they've they finally gotten through the primer shortage, but this all dovetails back around to the lack of employees going to these manufacturers that's creating the supply chain bottleneck, which is creating inflation. And when you talk about producer prices, you know, what was interesting about some of this this inflation data that came out this past week is if you start digging down, like we look at fruits and vegetables, their prices, their costs have actually started coming down. Even used cars have started to come down. So then that leads into to Chairman Jerome Powell's statement of the Federal Reserve is that some of this inflation is transitory. And lumber based prices. On, and lumber prices. Lumber. Well, lumber prices have been coming down for months now, but this goes back to the point that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, made is that, yes, we're starting to see some of these this inflationary data be transitory. But like I said in the last segment, I think employers having to motivate people to come and actually take a job, they're going to have to pay them more to get their boots on the ground to start working. And that's the type of inflation from a wage inflation standpoint that is going to be more permanent. But the thing that everyone has to remember, and I think this is what's kind of lost in the Biden administration, is that if employers are having to pay more wages to get boots on the ground, they're going to be passing those extra costs to the consumers on the other side. And so everything remains equal. And, and for some reason, the, the infinite wisdom of, of their economic advisors within his cabinet don't seem to understand that. If, if cost of goods to make goes up, they're going to be charging higher prices. So the person at the grocery store buying that good, who's also now making more money to be working wherever they're working, it all balances out. It all balances out with, with, with this. And so the manufacturer's not making any more money. And the extra income that the employers all the employees all excited about getting is completely taken away because of the inflation of the goods that they're buying. So, you know, so what's the la- go what's on the and last, on about this. What's the last inflation number that's come out? What was the last? Well, I mean, week? it was the it was the PPI. I mean, just but they, but again, they were going in and finding some areas where prices would be going down because I know for all of our listeners. The talk of inflation is a, a hot, hot topic. Well, it's a hot topic, particularly in, in the conservative news media. It's, it's something that's being discussed. And I will say that there's a few areas that I've heard that I feel is a little disingenuous. I'm, I know that we're on a conservative talk network, but I believe that there's a little bit of misguided information about it. 
But I, I will agree that what's taking place in the administration, since Jeff's not here to uh, to taper my talk when it comes to <laughs> politics, there he's not there, here to cancel you. No, he's saying? not here to cancel okay. me. No, exactly. But but there's definitely some things that are going on in Washington that is just tearing away at the fabric of this country that needs to be corrected ASAP. And we've got to get to the midterms in November. Well, I mean, you look at, it's not a a direct related to exactly what you're saying before, but you look at what's going on with OPEC right now and the current administration asking OPEC to produce more oil. Like, well, last time I checked, what state are we in? We're in Texas. And I mean, there, there's obviously areas that we can actually increase the production of oil. How about eight, just- uh, Joe? How about eight months ago that we were completely energy independent, and now we're now we have the Biden administration asking. I wouldn't say they're our friends, our foes, to increase oil production to Russia. help to, to to help with well, just all the OPEC countries yeah. to help. Let, let's let's give them more money when we actually were energy independent less than a year ago. I, I mean, you literally cannot make this stuff up. It makes absolutely no sense, but this this is kind of what we're forced to have to live through for at least the next 15 months until something can be done in the midterms. He's so, basically saying you can produce overseas all you want and not worry about the environment, but here we're going to focus on the environment and we're going to go green. Well, I yeah, mean, let, let, let's, 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 kill, let's, let's kill one of the biggest industries in this country and one, a very extremely profitable industry and living here in South Texas and Central Texas – I mean, I'm sure if we had a live show, our phones would be completely lit up and ringing off the hook of folks that are in the oil field that were making fantastic livings, working their working their rear ends off, but earning a great wage. And those jobs are being killed by just lunacy that's taking place in Washington. What I want to do is kind of take it uh, is direct something towards portfolios. If we're looking at. So what do we think inflation is going to look like for the year? So right now, if you took the S&P, which is up 18% for the year, and you net out inflation for the year, let's just, I mean, let's throw out a number. Let's say 5%. Your real rate of return is 13%. So when you're positioning your portfolio and you're worried about the stock market, you're worried about the bond market, like we said before, if we talked about inflation maybe enough, one of the easiest ways to invest in your portfolio and try to Try to beat inflation is what the S and P five hundred or stocks, or having a balanced portfolio. You know, you have to remember your real net rate of return is your total rate of return minus inflation. Well, so. the one thing, the one, and I had this conversation with with a new client uh, this past week about inflation being the silent killer because folks that are very nervous and emotional about the stocks and the stock market, they might do a lot of CD investing or high levels of fixed income invest, investing or just be holding it in cash. Well, you, ha- you, you have to understand you can't confuse return of principle with return of purchasing power. So you might feel warm and safe at night to see that you maybe have $100,000 in your savings account. And I don't want to commit that to the stock market. But at the end of the day, 30 days, you know, from from day one of a particular month to the 30th day of that same month, that $100,000 is worth less because of monetary inflation. Although you still see it in your bank account, there is that silent killer. So don't confuse return of principal with return of purchasing power. Stocks are designed to be able to help outpace monetary inflation over a long period of time. And I want to just say one more thing when we come back from the commercial break 
about inflation, I think there's a little bit of misguided information from the financial entertainment press. So I want to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can catch the Money Wise podcast on all your favorite podcast streaming apps. And I always bring up the podcast because in our Corpus Christi market, we actually do a two-hour show. In our second hour, uh, we have multiple uh, investor education programs that we play on a continuous basis. We have about 12 uh, or so educational segments that we kind of play in repetition, but obviously it takes months for us to get through all of them since we do only a weekly show. So if you want to catch those second hours, you can always go to our podcast or even our website at davidsoncap.com. So, you know, right before we went to break, talking about inflation and and inflation being the silent killer of your portfolio and talking about investors who might be a little bit more fearful of the stock market and not wanting to commit any assets or maybe very little to the stock market. You have to, you know, as we're moving into this higher inflationary environment, we can understand being possibly overly emotional and scared and nervous of committing a lot of your assets to the stock market. But you have to understand that stocks are designed to help your portfolio, your nest egg outpace monetary inflation over the long term. And not to confuse return of principal, which if you're holding a lot of cash or CDs or in fixed, strictly fixed income, you're confusing return of principal with return of purchasing power with inflation being that silent killer. And Joe, you gave kind of a good example. If we have 5% monetary inflation and the market is up 18%, your net real return is, is around 13%. Which is not which is not a bad return in any stretch of the imagination, double-digit return in the S&P 500. But if you're in fixed income or if you're in a savings account in historically low interest rate environments, you have a net negative return. Now, you don't see it in your savings account. If you have $100,000 in your savings account, $50,000 in your savings account, you see that same dollar amount at the end of the month, but that $50,000 buys you less. It buys you less each and every day. And as we've always talked about on this program, everyone's inflationary rate is different. So the government can put out numbers, you know, minus food and fuel, which is extremely volatile when they put out their inflationary data, but everyone's inflationary rate is different. So just know that there's ways to mitigate risk in your portfolio. And that's what we've been utilizing the MoneyWise program for 16 years now as a platform to help educate investors. You know, you start with your asset allocation, you know, never putting your eggs all in one basket, high level of diversification, participation in stocks, participation in fixed income, which is bonds, having a cash position. You know, that's a first line of defense. Second line of defense is active asset management, uh, being able to make decisions in your portfolio when market conditions necessitate that. You know, buy and hold forever. No, it's buying homework. I'm going to take that from Jim Cramer because he's absolutely right. It's buying homework. 
staying the course, which the majority, I would say 99.9% of the legacy distribution system, every major brokerage firm on Wall Street will tell you during market, during times of market uh, turmoil, oh, just stay the course, just stay the course. Have you ever thought, do they have an incentive to, t- to tell us that, to give us that advice of staying the course? Well, sure, sure. It's called revenue sharing. <laughs> you know, it's called sub-TA fees. That's the reason why. Do you think during the financial crisis, if a brokerage firm told you, you know what, you need to move 80% of your assets out of the stock market, they'd be cutting their own throats because of the revenue sharing that they get from the mutual fund families and the exchange traded fund providers or the active money managers that they use on the other side that are sharing fees with them. So they don't want to affect their bottom line. That's why they give you that advice, stay the course, but that's not active management. And then finally, a way, another way to protect yourself is security selection. And if these are things that you don't feel confident in, this is when you have to go and search and find someone who's competent, who's a fiduciary that puts your interests in front of their own, that follows the fiduciary standard to then actively manage your assets and make sure that they're actively managing those assets in-house and they're not shipping it off to somebody else. Yeah, Joe. Well, Kyle, the first segment you talked about the stock market doing a cha-cha or being in a sideways market. Security selection is extremely important under the circumstance that you're talking about in the first segment. You know, being able to properly reallocate securities. If you're just going to be buying the indexes across the board and you're not reallocating or you're not buying the right stocks, it's pretty tough to make money in a cha-cha. I'm going to call it now, Kyle, the, the cha-cha market. You know? <laughs> so, well, we talked about briskets earlier this year. Yeah, so. we're briskets and cha-chas. That's what we're about. But so, so investors have to have to keep that in mind. And I know there's a lot of choices out there, but you always have to do your research, you know, and we, I don't think we talk about it enough, you know, utilizing the free tools that are online, such as broker check to look up the permanent record, because everyone in the financial service industry carries a permanent record. So you can check and look in to see if they have any kind of dings or disclosures, customer disputes, any kind of issues with the regulators, which know, it, it can be a warning sign of possibly someone being unscrupulous in how they they handle your business. There's also, you know, again, as we talked about on this program for all these years, you know, avoiding annuities like the Black Plague of any shape or form. And it's very difficult to look up those salespeople's backgrounds. I mean, you can go to the State Board of Insurance, but their website is less than useful, less than helpful in checking somebody's background as far as disputes or settlements that they've had to deal with. Well, yeah, and Kyle, you're talking about you know, choosing an advisor. You know, if you're interviewing an advisor, just ask them how many allocation changes, how many changes they've made in the last two years. If you're with a current advisor, you know, and you want to know what you're paying for, especially if they're a fee-based advisor and they claim to be a fiduciary, go ahead and look at the last two years of the statements. See how many times they've actually actively moved the portfolio and made buys and sells in your portfolio. And if it's done on a quarterly basis, that's really not what I would call active money management. When do they do it and why do they do it? And can you call them and can they tell you why? That's more important. That's one of the things that why we get hired is if somebody calls in, they know they're talking to somebody who actually is pulling the trigger on the portfolio and they can get a direct answer on on why we did it. And all three of us are on board as a team. 
And the so, reason why we talk about portfolio reviews and analysis on the Money Wise program every time we come back from commercial break, because that's where the first step of the whole process starts, is getting a full comprehensive portfolio review to get a, to get a second opinion on what you've currently been doing. And that's the first step and receiving a deeper and broader education about what you're currently doing in your portfolio and if it's really working in concert together. So you can reach us at 800-275-2162 to schedule that portfolio review and analysis. With that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break. So for listeners of MoneyWise on 1200 WOAI, we'd like to thank you for listening to this weekend show. Again, if you'd like to catch the second hour, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com or catch our podcast on all your favorite podcast streaming apps. For listeners of MoneyWise on 1360 KKTX and Corpus Christi, stay tuned because when we come back from the top of the hour break, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program and going into more investor education. So stay tuned. And we'll do that after this. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906 906- zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you have an investment related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the money wise program you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com if you missed the first hour of money wise you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past money wise programs You can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at davidsoncap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, it's about time. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your politeness. Well, as we we like to use and utilize uh, the second hour of every weekend's Money Wise program, really going into investor education, And just, again, the continuing education that all investors need to be paying attention to because with the multitude of investment choices, the multitude of sales outlets, I should say, uh, to be buying different financial products, um, we feel it's our duty having a voice and having this radio show to to continue to provide that, that education. And there was an article that we've had for some time. We've talked about it on past shows, but it's always good to to reiterate. And it's a conversation I know that I have with prospective clients when it comes to investing. Um, and the, the title of the article is The Best Investment Advice Ever. <laughs> now, there's so much different advice out there, different guidance, different forms and levels of education out there. Um, you know, looking at this article, there's a very old saying that I know we have used 
from day one and of course with us uh you know being in this having davidson capital management for more than 25 years and and again this radio show going on now in our 10th year um looking at at rule number one for the best investment advice ever and that first rule is never lose money rule number two don't forget rule number one and i believe that uh that was one of warren buffett's Famous advice, and of course Warren Buffett being one of the richest men in the world, um, I think uh, it's good. It's good words to live by. And and when I sit down with prospective clients, the one the one area again of education I like to focus on is teaching a prospective client that it's not as much how well you do on the upside when the market is going up; it's how shallow you keep your hole on the downside it's it's whoever plays the best defense is what's really going to build long-term wealth and longevity of a portfolio rule this rule number 1 don't you think it's kind of unrealistic to say never lose money well and 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 again investors need to keep in mind there's a difference between realized losses and unrealized losses or paper losses uh, maybe rule number 1 should should read more like never put all your eggs in one basket never but put, but define never, that okay. define that a little okay. bit more okay, eggs in one basket never put 100% of your money in one asset class how's that Okay. Never put 100% of your money in stocks. Give us an asset class like, are Never. you talking sector specific, like all in real estate investment trusts or all in the material sector or all in technology? I think I think really the rule number one to me, and it kind of goes along the same lines as what you're talking about with keeping the hole shallow, is there's no, no such thing as never lose money. I mean, every investment – we have never had an investment decision that we've made – in the 25 years as Davidson Capital Management, every investment decision that we've made has not always made money. Some of those investment decisions have lost money. There isn't a single person on the planet that's made an investment decision that hasn't lost money at one time or the other. The the really successful people in investing never lose a lot of money. Now, keeping a that lot of money, shallow. keeping the whole shallow, as you were saying, and 2008 is is a great example of keeping the hole the, the hole as shallow as possible because we were never 100 percent invested in stocks that year, and we were also reducing stocks as that year went on, and so we 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 didn't suffer the 35 our clients' portfolios didn't suffer the 35 40. 50% losses that the investors that we saw come to us in 2009 and 2010, and we asked them, you know, how did you do in 2008? And they said, well, I lost 40% or I lost more than 40%. We knew right then and there that they had way too much money in stocks, if not their entire portfolio in stocks, and it wasn't being managed properly, obviously. That's, that's a key. It wasn't actively managed. It was, and again, that set it and forget it. Mentality that said and forget it portfolio. So, the the rule number one that's never lose money and rule number two never forget rule number one is all fine and good, but it's not realistic because if you're going to have a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, cash, and all different types of asset classes, some of those asset classes aren't going to make money in a particular year. Some will. Uh, some will be more successful than others, 
But I think it's unrealistic to expect to never to lose money in, in investing. Because if, if rule number one, never lose money, that means you're never going to take risk. Which means you're going to be you're going to own CDs. Sorry to take your your thunder away there. You're going to own government bonds and hold them to maturity, or you're going to own CDs or cash, or you're going to have cash. Well, that I don't know too many investors that can reach their retirement goals uh, just by being in cash or government bonds. Well, and, and again, when you are invested and you're invested in the stock market, even the bond market. When you look at an unrealized gain and loss report, if you're showing some unrealized losses, those are paper losses. Those are losses that you have not taken. It's just on paper. It's just numbers. But that loss can be will become realized if you decide to sell out. And what happened to a lot of investors in 2008 is they watched the ride all the way down. And then they got to their maximum pain threshold, and what did they do? They sold. And for a lot of investors, after they did that sell and the selling they did, they have yet to get back in. That's why we continue to face the very thin market conditions, the whipsawing of the markets because there's fewer and fewer participants because they still have not gotten back in because they're still licking and and taking care of their wounds from 2008 because they sold out and turned those unrealized losses to realized losses. But if they had a proper allocation and having their assets actively managed, they wouldn't have suffered as much pain and distress in their portfolio as we have seen doing our portfolio reviews and analysis of prospective clients. So, well, we're going to pause right there. We're going to take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education and talking about an article titled The Best Investment Advice Ever. And, you know, again, the old Warren Buffett saying, you know, rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. And us just kind of really discussing how that's kind of unrealistic. Um, Because like Jeff, like you said in the last segment, you're going to run into some type of losses, be it unrealized or realized losses, at some point in time in your investing career, unless you're invested in cash, which isn't an investment, CDs, or government bonds. You know, you have to take a certain level of risk. You have to assume a certain level of risk to have the potential for capital appreciation and growth of your assets to meet your retirement goals or for whatever goals that you're saving for. And, Dad, I know that you wanted to, the big dog wanted to eat a little bit and had something to add to, to what. We were just talking about. Well, I think I originally said this to you when you guys came into the business. Oh, you've been saying this as long as I can remember. These were basic rules of investing. I I honestly think this is a little bit of a Will Rogers comment. I'm not so sure that Warren Buffett didn't steal this from 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 Will Rogers. He never met a man he didn't like. And 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 what this means, you know, this is you know, this will be my 37th year starting my 38th year of being a portfolio manager, not counting the four years as a broker and one year in graduate school, so you can add all that up. But when I see this, what this really means to me 
is never lose big money. Never take big losses because you can't come back from them, whether it's financially or even psychologically. Hold on. Let me stop you right there. You just hit an important point. Psychologically. It's the psychological part part of this. Um, A lot of people get in investing. They get in the game, as Jim Cramer calls it. It's not a game. But they get in the game, and they have some moderate success, and then they start building their bet. They start pushing pushing the chips and further as they and further. build their bet, they will get to the point where they lose. Now, to be successful, the one thing that I have learned in my thirty seven plus years, to be successful in investing, you have to invest on a regular basis. You just can't do it once in a while, and if and you need to take a number of positions because as you take positions, your batting average gets better. And to be successful, it isn't participating when the markets go up, as you said. It's not losing as much going down. So I believe my personal success as an investor has come with my ability to sell. I think I'm a lot better seller than I am a buyer. And and, and one thing that we say in this office, and this was definitely true in 2008, and of course, you know, this was prior to me joining the family's firm back. Jeff, I know you were here back during the dot-com bubble burst, bursting of the, of the dot-coms, um, is that when, cert- when the markets and times just don't make sense, when what's up is down and what's down is up, when there's times where the market doesn't make sense, it never hurts to get more liquid and lay in the weeds. I know that's an old saying, Dad, that I've heard come out of your mouth for years, way before I even joined the family business, that... It's okay sometimes to raise liquidity and lay in the weeds until things get a little clearer. Now, it's important for all investors to understand you're never going to have 100% clarity. The waters are never going to be 100% clear. There's always going to be some level of cloudiness. But in situations like the dot-coms, like 2008, uh, even like how you know how the markets have, have started off in the past couple of years, um, things get a little clouded and get a little bit more whipsawish. And sometimes it's better to just kind of raise some cash and lay back until things start to pan out and make a little bit more sense because that's what we've been dealing with is some just counterintuitiveness that we've been experiencing in the market for the past couple of years. You know, and this led me to what we were talking about earlier, rule number one, never lose money, never forget rule number one this is rule number two. Well, if we were in an environment where government bonds was paying 9%, then a lot of people would be attracted to that. And and there and there's been times in my career when you could do that. And so there's a riskless return that would be that would be historically a good return. Unfortunately, that was occurring when inflation was at twelve, thirteen, fourteen. So you were losing, <laughs> losing to just inflation. like today. Mm-hmm. Just like today if you put too much in bonds versus what each individual person's inflation rate is. But What this really says is what y'all were talking about, is that if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, if you're going to step out there and take that level of risk, then you are potentially putting yourself in a position to lose a substantial amount of your money and not have enough money to get back into the game, whatever game it is you're playing. 
But, so, but again, but again, we don't look at the market as no, a game. No, it's not a game. It's not a game at all. But if you are, if you're a trader, I would say a trader views the market somewhat as a game. I'd agree. If you're an investor, it's a serious game, and so each individual has to decide what type of is he a trader. Am I an investor, or is this trading money? Is this investing money? So you, there's various pools that you could be doing, but. One thing that you cannot do is you cannot sustain large losses and be a successful investor or trader. So whatever method you use to reduce your losses, your risk, your risk, you're going to have to take that. And if you don't determine a system that allows you to do that, you are not going to be successful. In the long term, absolutely. And, and and see, that's the thing, Dad, is I think for some investors, maybe the traders that view the market as more of a game, more of action, more Vegas style, they have a couple of big wins where they knock it out of the park and that boosts their confidence, that helps them boost their, their maybe their trading and investing ego psychologically. That's when they start pushing over pushing the chips further and further over the line and bigger amounts of chips, then they strike out. Then they take that loss and then their the psychological aspect of it might be a loss so bad that they say to heck with the stock market, I'm never getting involved in it again. And what we've always advocated and always tried to teach is about a proper balance, about diversification. As Jeff said, not putting all your eggs in one basket, spreading out that risk, or to use a technical term, spreading out your beta. But you can't just spread it out and forget it. You have to continue to actively manage it, actively monitor it. And if you don't, then you need to work with a firm that's going to do that. I- I learned many years ago that I was not a successful trader. Trading was not something that I was good at. I was good at looking at a longer picture. It fit my personality better to be an investor, plus by taking a longer-term view, thinking in terms in the stock market of actually owning the company that I was buying I found that that was more successful. And I learned that as a broker. I, I, I felt comfortable with that. What I didn't feel comfortable with was potential clients or new clients that had to have action. Because I don't necessarily think Wall Street is the best place to get action. I think you would be better off to go to Vegas because it doesn't require that much thinking if you need action. If you like to bet on football games. with If you need that fix. If you need that. And there are people that need that. But it, Wall Street can be a very dangerous place for people that need that type of fix. I have not run into that many successful people who have traded the market. I've run into many successful investors, very few successful traders. Well, and I think some some other points you made just a few minutes ago when we talk about risk capacity, about taking a big hit to your portfolio, and again, for continuing investor education, the older you get, the closer you get to your retirement, I guess, date and time as far as your age, your risk capacity gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, you know, and I've run into people who have have very large risk, you know, very small risk tolerance, their personal aversion to risk, but they have huge risk capacity. And when you run into that situation, it's really they have their money invested very lazily. It's, it's very lazy money. 
it's very four and five percent returns when they should be taking advantage of their age. So the younger you are, the greater risk capacity you have. And so you have to really marry risk tolerance and risk capacity into one. Um, and that's, again, something else that we, that we try to teach. So just understand, as you get older, your risk capacity gets smaller, and you have to have your portfolio managed and allocated in a way that reflects that risk capacity. What you see on CNBC, and we don't spend that much time watching any of the other channels, but what we see on CNBC is a parade of traders, Parade of people looking for action, daily action, weekly action, fast money, fast money. You know, everything is geared towards trading. trading. Mm-hmm. That is that segment of the market. That is not a segment that Davidson Capital Management has ever participated in, or would feel comfortable being in. And so, when we sit here and we talk about what we see. We don't necessarily feel that that type of program serves the public to the extent it could. That's right. Well, with that, we're coming to the bottom of the hour break. So we'll take the break. When we come back, we'll be continuing our investor education, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to cover here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing talking about the best investment advice ever article that comes from Market Watch and the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, Dad, I, as you were talking in the last segment, you know, you mentioned Jim Cramer's name. And I know there's a segment on his show that he loves to do where people call in and say, am I diversified? And they give him five stock names. And he'll either anoint it as being you're diversified or you're not diversified. And when I watch that, I, to me, it seems like it's a disservice to the investing public because what he is basically um, validating is that it's okay to put 20% of your money in one particular stock position, to hold five individual stocks, and as long as those five individual stocks are in five different industry sectors, then you're okay, you're safe. And I think that is some of the most dangerous advice you could possibly give with with his type of background and acumen as a money manager or as a hedge fund manager, I should say. Well, I I, I don't agree with it. Dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous if you don't watch your eggs real close. If you only got five, uh, <laughs> you're making I mean, you're making big bets in, in on the, five in the, companies. In the beginning, in the beginning, when I created uh, the philosophy, uh, it became apparent to me that I didn't ever want more than 5% in anything because I learned very quickly that if I bought 5% uh, of your assets in one individual well, position. Yes. If I bought 10 positions, 3.5 of them were going to be losers, but I loved all 10. Mm-hmm. And so when I got it out to 20, then I'm going to have six losers in normal markets. Mm-hmm. And the key was having the six losers not be big enough losers to overset the profits 
that were in the other 14. Well, if I'm Jim Cramer and five is my diversification, I sure hope it's not my six losers because then my every five, those whole five positions would be losers. So to me, that was not enough positions to be diversified. That was very concentrated. And to be that concentrated, I don't want you to think you're diversified. You are not diversified with five positions. I mean, you might you are, be you might be diversified in the sense that you're in five different industry sectors, but you're making a very large bet on one company in that and, industrial sector. And I'll tell sector. you something else. If you limit yourself to that few of positions, you're either going to do extremely well versus the market or you're going to do extremely badly. You're, you're not going to crash do average. You're either going to do real well or real bad. So it's either a home run or a strikeout. Now, you can't build a business on real bad. Mm-mm. Now, he was successful as a hedge fund manager because he was a trader. He was not an investor. Long term to him could have been one day. So when you hear him discuss that, I mean, he can't do a show and do Am I Diversified and have someone giving 20 positions. So some of his Am I Diversified is for TV. For, well, it's for TV. He did it first on his radio show. Mm-hmm. That's where it started. He did that on the radio show. Now, he used to do radio and TV, and his radio show was really a whole lot better than the TV show. He didn't do all that screaming and jumping around like he does, and he would just talk, which I found better for investors to listen to. He was more investor-oriented as opposed to trading. So us saying that we believe you ought to have 20 positions gets back to this fact that we don't want more than 5% of any person's assets in one position. And we say that even in your company stock. If you're investing in your company stock, the stock where you work. Three or 401 Yeah, we don't want more than 5% of your retirement money in the company stock. And I don't care how great the stock is. Because I happen to have seen times in my life where I worked for companies where people put a lot much, lot more in that, and then the companies went out of business. They not only lost their job, but they lost their retirement. And I, I can tell you that Jeff and I see this doing portfolio doing portfolio reviews a lot with the petroleum industry employees, putting a lot of their retirement nest egg through four hundred one ks in their company stock, and it's great to be supportive and it's great to love where you work and love who your employer is but you also have to kind of be a little selfish and think about your own retirement needs and your own retirement nest egg and not take too big of a bet because again harkens back to Enron it harkens back to WorldCom I mean it harkens back to those employees years ago who lost their nest egg because there was a lot of cheerleading from upper level management to buy keep keep funneling as much money in it as possible not saying that any companies in existence today are you know doing some of the fraudulent things that that these companies were doing but you always have to look out for kind of number one i mean you have to look out for number one when you're saving for retirement and you know another thing that i like to teach particularly when it comes to long-term investing and when it comes to performance I always like to use the analogy is you have to look at your investment returns like a batting average, like a batting average for a baseball player. You know, let's use Ted Williams or let's use Tony Gwynn. Uh, you know, rest, may he rest in peace. Let's use him as an example. You know, baseball players can get into the Hall of Fame 
with having a great lifetime batting average. But throughout their career, throughout the lifetime of them stepping up to the plate, they're going to have years where they underperform, where they don't have a good year at the, uh, up at the plate and they don't bat very well and they have low numbers. And then they're going to have other years where they have some average years. And then they're going to have some great years where they're knocking the cover off the ball. But what determines whether or not a baseball player gets into the Hall of Fame is their lifetime batting average, and it's the combination of all of those years and how they've performed. It's the same thought process and the same thought pattern you need to have when it comes to investing. You're going to have some below average years. You're going to have some just average years, and you're going to have some great years. But the key is is to have more great years than bad and average years to get your portfolio to the Hall of Fame. Well, here's a little commercial coming in here. 25, this is our 26th year, and I was talking about I'm starting my 38th year as a manager. There was 12 years in there before Davidson Capital Management was formed in which I developed our philosophy. And I developed it managing money under three or four different corporate situations where I learned what was working and what wasn't working. And, you know, I learned on other people's money, so to speak. But I learned through those years that 100% equity made no sense. 100% bond made no sense. But the two could work together in combination. But what I found was there wasn't, there were fixed income people and there were stock people. There wasn't both. You didn't see the hybrid. You didn't see the manager that could do both sides. And so as I, as I developed our philosophy, I learned that it made more sense to be 10 years and under. It made more sense to stick with quality because by sticking with quality, you took risk out. By having stocks and bonds, you took risk out. And by doing that, you raised your batting average. You made the hole shallower when you were losing in stocks you were making in bonds. And so in the beginning, oh, yeah, everyone knows the most money you can make is to be 100% in the stock market. And it works really good until 1987 rolls around and it goes down 25% in one day. That doesn't work very well. That wipes out a number of years in about four hours. And you learn, hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And same thing in the late 90s. Oh, yeah, that was wonderful when the dot-coms were going crazy, but it didn't look real good late in 2000, 2001, and two. And, you know, staying the course was really great in January, February, March of 2008. It wasn't very great in November, December 2008. Or, or January, February. there might not be a course to <laughs> stay. Nine. You might not have had enough course to, to, to have a meal. Well, and, and again, that goes back to what we talked about a few segments ago about the psychological damage. And I know that we've talked on past shows here on Money Wise where we've talked about the psychological effects when you take these kind of losses and how, again, it, it creates that emotion and that fear. And when fear and emotion start combining into your portfolio, it keeps you sitting on the sidelines or it keeps you less invested in stocks to to really try to achieve and reach your goal for whatever you're saving for, and we're still seeing that today. I mean, again, we're seeing it today because we see the volatility. If there's more participants, more investors in this market, more mom-and-pop investors, we wouldn't see this extreme levels of volatility that we've been seeing. 
if we taxed day trading, we wouldn't have this extreme volatility. Or if having. we taxed high-frequency trading or got high-frequency well, trading under control. That's, that's what I'm saying. That would take care of that problem. The problem is, is that high-frequency trading is paying the note for the New York Stock Exchange. That's how they're making their money. They are never going to go against that. For something to change in that market, it's going to have to come from outside. It's not going to come from within Wall Street. Well, really, what we have to have, Dad, is we have to have a nonprofit exchange. We have to well, have yeah. a nonprofit you exchange. You guys will see that. I'm, I'm convinced. You think Jeff and I will see I a nonprofit really think exchange? You, I really think you in will our career. see that in your lifetime. You will see a national market. I mean, because that will take away the incentive for the high-frequency yes. trading. I, I, and it'll be I welcome it'll be somewhere in the central part of the country, away from Wall Street. I, I welcome that day. I welcome the day to where we see a nonprofit exchange and maybe just a one central exchange. Let me correct you. Jeff may not see it. I think you will see it, Kyle. <laughs> well, we're not that far away in age, so it's only about uh, less than ten, 10 years. years in there. All right. Well, let's take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-275. Two one six two, and if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So going back to this article, there was a couple of other statements, and these actually come from Ben Franklin, and and one of them is an investment in knowledge pays the most interest. And again, one of the reasons why we started this radio show back in late two thousand and five was. Because it gave us a podium, it gave us a platform to provide education because there's just, uh, there's such a lack of education out there. And it seems like a lot of the education that is available has a particular bent. You know, it's trying to push you in a certain direction as an investor to buy an investment product that's being sold by the uh, financial legacy distribution system you know, as we like to call it, it always seems that education is kind of pushing you one direction or another, and we're trying to provide unbiased education. And as we always say to all investors is that, you know, there are so many tools available online for you to educate yourself. You know, when a a pitch sounds too good to be true, it, it most likely is, and there's a lot of vehicles out there to help you to educate yourself. And so as Benjamin Franklin says, an investment in knowledge pays the most interest. You really have to you have to really let that kind of soak into you and utilize the tools available. You know, if you want to look up the broker that you're working with, go to brokercheck.com. You know, someone's pitching you an investment product. Before you sign on the line and which is dotted, look it up. Do some research. Educate yourself. You know, as we say, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old or a 10-year-old in two or three minutes and get them to understand that then you're probably, it's not a good idea to buy. Um, Another statement is beware of expenses. A small leak will sink a great ship. And boy, how many times have we seen that, Jeff? You know, expenses is 
one thing that is easiest to control if you understand that you're getting charged more more fees than than you think you are to begin with. And I see this a lot with we see this a lot with annuities. Um annuities I think are probably one of the biggest Drain. Challenges, I would say, drains on, know, on assets. The biggest challenges to a portfolio being successful is is owning an annuity inside that portfolio, because you're you're basically guaranteeing that you will never even equal a market average performance, because the fees and expenses built into the 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 annuity itself, even if it has the best possible investment options and trust me the average annuity does not have the best the best uh, investment choices possible when you add up average investment choices with high expenses you're guaranteed to be below average consistently year after year after year after year and they're still sold they're they're still successfully selling them to investors every single day, and we've in the ten years that we've done this show, we've almost made this our personal uh, mission. Mission, there you go. <laughs> it's a personal Cru- mission. To, Cru- to, crusade. To, yeah, I like that. To steer crusade. people away from these types of investments. Now, there's also many other violators. You know, av- uh, uh, the the average loaded mutual fund carries. Uh, an initial sales charge that's equal to multiple years of professional full-time investment management just to buy into the mutual fund itself. They, you know, a minimum, you know, anywhere from two to three percent to as almost as much as six percent uh, is very common in an upfront sales charge. Another thing is buying stocks. You know, just buying stocks through a full-service broker. And you're you're the average ticket price that I see from an from a full service broker is about two percent of the gross purchase, and that is outrageous. So you know for five thousand dollar purchase, you're paying two hundred and fifty dollars in transaction costs. I mean that's 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 a that's twenty uh, times egregious. more. That's twenty times more you'd pay at a at a, at a discount brokerage firm. Yes, well, you better well, be getting good advice if well, you're paying that kind of fee. Well, well, now, if that broker is giving you good advice and covers the two percent, that's one thing. But you and I both know, unfortunately, the vast majority of them do not. Well, the one thing again, talking about fees and and what I I like to to do for any individual investor out there is to understand the two big types of fees. You have your hard dollar fees and your soft dollar fees. Your hard dollar fees are your upfront commissions. You know, those are the commissions that you see when you buy that mutual fund or you buy that stock and you pay that commission and you see it come right off the right off the top. You see that difference in what you're investing and what you actually paid and what was actually invested. That's a hard dollar cost. But where annuities, where non-traded real estate investment trusts uh, where even mutual funds, once you get past that initial sales fee, really get their investors or get their clients is on the soft dollar side. Those are the fees that are accrued daily and taken out daily that you never see. When you get your statement from your, annu- from your annuity, 
that's net of those soft dollar fees. When you get a statement about your stocks or your individual mutual funds, it's net of those soft dollar fees. Those are the fees that you don't see. Those are the fees that you also need to be asking about. And if you're sitting down and someone's pitching you an annuity and you ask them, well, what are the soft dollar charges, they're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know what to do, and they're going to start trying to provide you with the half-truths of what you're actually well, they're, spending. Well, they're going to focus on these guaranteed returns. The G word. Yeah, the, yeah they're going to focus on the G word. Which, again, is not a guarantee. It's just a promise, and it's only as good as the company providing the promise. They're going to say, don't you want... 5% a year guaranteed income for the rest of your life. Don't you want that, Mr. or Mrs. Customer? And it's not quite that simple. Nope. And what they're talking about is the published interest rate, which changes monthly. It's just that hook to get you to sign on that line, and which is dotted to get you into that long surrender charge penalty period so they can lock your assets up. So you have to understand the difference between hard dollar costs and soft dollar costs. And soft dollar costs are in the prospectus. Soft dollar costs are in the information, but you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to dig deeper, as we've always said from day one on this program. And to really summarize this hour is you have to dig deeper well, and use the tools available to educate yourself before yeah, number, you make that number investment Number one, decision. be diversified. Number two, know what you own. Do the research, dig deeper, as you say, and number three, have a always have a mind on what it's costing. That's right. Okay, and with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us at nine zero six zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five. 2162. For my father, John, and my brother, Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.